We're going to look at this passage from 1 Chronicles. A passage that we're looking at because we take a Sunday or two in January to talk about stewardship, money, giving every January. And so if you're visiting with us, I know that you're probably thinking, where's the nearest door? Uh, maybe if you're not visiting with us. Uh, we, I understand. And because of that, I'm going to pray for us. So let me pray. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All things are yours. It's only of your own that we give back. And so now, in this act of preaching, may we give back and give ourselves as we receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned that we spend time in January to talk about stewardship, to talk about giving. And uh, I want you to know why we don't talk about that. We are not talking about that because we are in dire straits. And that is not the reason why we bring it up. In fact, that's why we do it in January. It's not like we're trying to make our budget by the end of the year. Uh, but I understand, I mean, one of the reasons that we do that is because we don't want you to feel like when we talk about money, it's about kind of crisis giving. And we talk about stewardship because it's uh, mentioned over and over again in the Bible. But you might be saying, why talk about it at all? Because let's be honest, a lot of churches were kind of wouldn't talk about it. For a long time of this church, it wasn't talked about. And I understand because lots of churches talk about it in a wrong way. And because of that, lots of people have a preconceived notion that the church is really there to get your money. In fact, I remember hearing adults growing up saying, well, he's not doing that or he's talking about this and it's because they want my money. And maybe you feel that way. And with those dangers in mind, uh, a lot of folks kind of, if they talk about money, they do so with embarrassment, uh, a little feeling, a little coy. And I understand that. I grew up in a church that didn't even collect an offering because of that. The offerings were in the uh, foyer. And that was part of, uh, that was part of the, the kind of pride of it, is we don't collect an offering, we have the offering boxes in the back, and we don't talk about money. And God just provides. Yet, in light of all that, I want to think about how David responds and talks about money in this passage. I mean... David does some things that, let's be honest, make us in our context quite uncomfortable. First, he talks about how much he and other people are giving, like directly, this much. And then he also talks about, he also makes a direct plea to the people to give. And then after they do give, he celebrates it. Rejoices in it. Has a party over it. Now let's be honest. Like that is very far from our mentality. Why does David talk about giving and act uh, and have such a different response than we do and approach? 
Well, one reason I think we could say is the cultural context, and they are different. But I don't think that's the only reason. See, I think David understood some things about giving that we need to understand. And if we understood, then I think that we might be more apt to, to rejoice, to celebrate, to sing over giving, and to talk about it in a way that is much more free. So four things from this passage that I think David understood that we need to understand that allows us to approach giving rightly. The first thing that David understood that we don't often understand is he understood that the need is great. Look in verse 1 sets the context. David has been told that his son Solomon will build a temple. A temple in which God would come and dwell and be with his people. And David, because he knows that the, the issue is great, he starts a fundraising campaign because he knows that this is going to take a while. So verse 1, David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. The work is great. See, David knows that for this temple to get built, it's going to take more than one person, even a king. That actually everybody has to contribute. That it's a communal effort. And so David starts this fundraising campaign where he gives and he calls everyone to give to this project. Now you think, that's a really interesting bit of history, Kyle. What on earth do temples have to do with me or CPC in 2019? Only everything you see, what is the purpose of God in this world? The purpose of God in this world is to build a temple. A temple the, whole, the size of the earth. You see, Habakkuk 2.14, which was mentioned in a prayer earlier, it states it, that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the sea. How much of the water covers the sea? All of it. What we're talking about is a world chock full of the knowledge of the glory of God. From end to end, sea to shining sea, every nook, every cranny. That is God's purpose. That is God's intention in this world. And you know what that is when the earth is full? You know what it is when something is full of the glory of God and the knowledge of his glory and his manifest presence and it's known and seen and, and felt? You know what that's called in ancient Israel? You know where that was? The temple. In other words, this earth is to become a temple to the living God. This whole earth is to be the holy of holies. And if you don't believe me, then turn to Revelation 21, where we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And what is it but a city that covers the earth that is a temple. And God is all in all. And his manifest presence is felt everywhere. That is the purpose of the scripture. That is what we are called to do. And that is something that cannot be accomplished by one person. The need is great. I, uh, I was in my office doing premarital counseling years ago with a young couple. 
And when I do premarital counseling, we cover the most important things, which by the most important things, I mean the most important things married couples fight over. So we talk about money. And when we get to talking about money, this couple looks at me, and, uh, and they, they, were, uh, they were very eager to, um, to make their lives one and to sympathize with the other. And so um, the, the girl confesses on behalf of her fiancé that he doesn't give. And she says, I want to talk about that. And I was like, okay, let's talk about that. Why don't you give? And I don't give either. Okay, why don't you give? And they looked at me. And they said, well, we go to the annual meetings and we see the budget reports and every year we see that CDC is meeting its budget. So we figured there isn't a need to give. Now, let me say, I understand that. And I take some of the blame for that, that, what they were, that type of thinking. But I want to set the record straight. We set a spending plan every year. We set a spending plan of goals that we think are based on what God has provided in the last year and what he's going to provide this next year and how we should accomplish those goals. We set a spending plan every year and by God's grace, we've actually been able to follow that spending plan and exceed that spending plan. Every year since I've been here, that's happened. And that's not me. I'm just saying that that's, that's been the pattern of the church. God has done that. And that is something that we can celebrate. And, and that's wonderful. But I, I want to set the record straight. The need is great. And the need exceeds that spending plan. The need far exceeds that spending plan. And our vision exceeds that spending plan. Because you know what the vision is. The vision is for the earth to be full of the knowledge and glory of God as the water covers the sea. And we don't have a budget yet that's going to meet that. We don't have a spending plan yet that's going to meet that. And we actually have to make progressive steps to do that. And there is always more that we could do in reaching out to that. So, so let, me, let me just be really clear about what this would look like. We would not sit on our money. We would, we would take these resources and do things like, I don't know, have a full-time person, staff worker devoted to discipling and loving our youth into Jesus. No, no, we wouldn't just do that. We would have a team of youth staff workers, one appointed to every school in the city, that would meet with students and hang out with students and teach them about the love of Jesus and disciple them. Oh, no, 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 no. We wouldn't just do that. We would not just do that. No way. We would, have, we, would have, we would have facilities and resources for children's ministry so that we could put a VBS on every week of the summer that people could come to for free. And you better believe that people who had never been to church and whose kids had never been to church would sign their kids up for that. You better believe they would. And those kids would be hearing about Jesus. And then those parents would start coming to the church. You, you, and we would be teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You better believe. You better believe that, that, that we would do more than that. That we would start a counseling center that would meet people's real need with the sin and suffering, the sin and suffering that they experience with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You better believe. And we would be training up more people. And we would have, we would have retreats and conferences that we were sending our leaders to, but not just our leaders, that we were developing lay leaders to, and we were just sending them to get them equipped for whatever ministry that they were involved in. And we would do much more than that. We would have vocational guilds all across this city. Bible studies that were done, particularly for you and your vocation to ask, how do I see the knowledge of the glory of God met in this place? Cottage Hospital. The government building. The Granada and the arts. We would see it all across. And, and not just that. Once we had finally seen Santa Barbara full of the knowledge and glory of God as the water covers the sea. Well then we would move to Goleta and then we would go up to Lompoc and down to Ventura. And we would spread out over and over and over and over and over again until it happened. So I want to set the record straight. The need is great. And it takes all of us. And that's why David celebrates this giving because he knows that the need is so great, or he knows that the need is great, and he knows what this is going towards. That's the first thing. But it's not simply that the need is great, David also understands that the cause is worthy. He goes on in verse 1 to say, that not only is the work great, but for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. That the purpose of this is not for man, not for humanity, but for God's glory. You know, if you have enough money, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Besides, like, save your life. You can do a lot of things. Like, you could go to the French Laundry tonight, which is a restaurant that you would have to book out years in advance. And if you have enough money, you can eat there. Because you can either pay someone for their seat, or you can buy out the whole restaurant. And you can pay the chef, and you can pay the chef enough to cook you a meal that would also put his kids to college and his grandkids to college. See, if you had enough money, you could do that. If you had enough money, you could fly anywhere you wanted today at whatever time you wanted. If you had enough money. See, what is money? Money is power. Money is power, and money achieves things. Now, here's the question. What do you want to do with your money? There are a, a lot of great causes out in the world. And you probably get invited to go to fundraisers or go to dinners, especially at the end of the year, but also throughout the year, where you can put your money, your power, towards a lot of worthy causes. There are political causes. There are educational causes. There are humanitarian causes. There are environmental causes. There are so many wonderful causes out there that you could put your money towards. But here's the thing, and, and, and by the way, people, they will get in front of you and tell you how worthy those causes are because they believe in them. And they will tell you without embarrassment or shame to put your money towards that. There's one cause 
There's one cause that Jesus explicitly stands behind and says, explicitly, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There are a lot of worthy causes in this world, and I mean that. But none of them is as worthy as the church of Jesus Christ. Because it's through this sinful, yes, sinful, feeble, yes, feeble, broken, yes, broken institution that God has chosen to be a sign and witness and harbinger of his kingdom. It is through ordinary means, yes, very ordinary, that God brings about supernatural ends. It is through the foolishness of a message about a crucified and risen Messiah, Israel's Messiah, that God is saving people. It's through morsels of bread, thimbles of wine, and sprinkles of water that God is uniting people to the inviolable in eternal life of his son. There is no greater cause. And so, if people can stand in front of you without any embarrassment or any shame or any apology and tell you to give to worthy causes, then I don't know why we aren't saying without any embarrassment or any shame that this is a worthy cause for you to give money to. See, money is power. What do you want to do with it? You want to build and support the kingdom of God. That's the second thing that David realizes. The third thing that David realizes, not simply that the need is great or that the cause is worthy, but also that the privilege is tremendous. You know, a lot of people stand before an offering and they'll say something like, and you hear it a lot in church, you'll hear, um, it, now we have the privilege to give. And I'm going to be honest with you. I know I'm not supposed to say this as a preacher, but I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to take off my pastor hat and just get real with you for a second, just a second. And I'm going to tell you that when people say that, I always kind of like, just sounds like something pious people say to me. It just sounds like words. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, why is it a tr privilege to give? I was just, just sounds like words. It's just something we say. It's our privilege to do this. It's, it sounds like a spiritual, pious thing to say. But you know, David, he doesn't just say that giving is a privilege. In fact, he doesn't say that giving is a privilege. What he does is he feels that giving is a privilege. Did you hear it? Listen to verse 14. Who am I? And what is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly. Who am I? David doesn't just say that giving is a privilege. David actually feels it. You get a sense that these just aren't pious words. This is something that actually like goes down to the depth of his being. He is overwhelmed by the fact that he gets to give. Why? Well, he goes on. For all things come from you. 
and of your own have we given you. David understands that God owns all things. Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. God owns everything, and he relinquishes that ownership not one whit, ever. So we are always just stewards. We are always God's money managers. We are never more than that. And because God owns all things, all things actually come from God. Verse 12, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. See, everything that we have is a gift. Do you know that? Everything you have is a gift. Your intellect is a gift. Your physical prowess is a gift. Your abilities are a gift. Your social capital is a gift. And every opportunity that you have is a gift. But we often miss that. There's a guy named Paul Piff who studies, he's a social psychologist. And what he uh, researches is social hierarchies and how they play out in society. And he did this experiment um, uh, on the campus of uh, UC Berkeley. And it was an experiment that revolved around the game of Monopoly. Now, I don't know if you have had any bad experience with Monopoly, but if you haven't, it's because you haven't played it. <laughs> There's something about that game that brings out something in people. Like, I remember, like, I, I, I distinctly remember, like, people stealing at the Monopoly table uh, when my parents would play and have these, all their friends over, and they had, like, a huge dining table, and they often played with real money, right? It was a little weird. So, uh, but people are stealing, people are, I mean, people get vicious in Monopoly, right? Well, Paul Piff, he basically says, I'm going to do the game of Monopoly, we're going to have it on the campus of UC Berkeley, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rig the game so that a player is given a distinct advantage. Maybe the advantage is they get twice as much money as everyone else. Maybe the advantage is that they collect double when they pass go. Maybe the advantage is that they get two rolls instead of one. Maybe the advantage is that they get all of that. And then what he does is after giving the person the advantage and doing the rigged game, they just observe human behavior. There were lots of things that, to observe. One is that people who, were, um, who had this kind of ability and power, they would move around the board with more aggression. <clears throat> right? Uh, they would knock people's houses off and things like that, right? Start doing. Uh, but I think the best out of all of them that I heard was after the game was done, they caught in the lobby this person who had won, who had this huge advantage over everyone else, they heard them describing to the other players how they were a brilliant strategist and all the strategic moves that they had made to beat them. And they were sitting there teaching them the strategy of Monopoly and how to win, right? Uh, even though the person was completely rigged and it had nothing to do with strategy, it had everything to do with the fact that the game was rigged. And I think about that story, and I think, man, 
I knew Berkeley was bad. <laughs> Not really. Because I don't think it has anything to do with UC Berkeley. I think it has everything to do with humanity. And we act that way before God. We act that way before God. Everything that we have is given, and yet we act like we've somehow earned it. That it's ours. I worked hard for that. It's mine. While those other people were lazy, I worked hard. And, and, and I made my way. And so it's my time, it's my money, it's my family, it's mine. And we feel the sense of entitlement. I deserve this, it's mine. The Apostle Paul asked the church at Corinth this very penetrating question that actually, it grasped the attention of a theologian named St. Augustine, and it was the kind of driving force behind all his theology. And here's the question that Paul asked the Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? Have you ever considered that question? What do you have that you did not receive? You say, well, I have all this money. Well, how'd you get that money? I worked hard for it. Okay. But you worked hard for it at a certain job. What gave you the opportunities to have that job? What gave you the networking potential and social capital to get into that position? Where did that start? You say, well, I, 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 I really worked hard at college meeting people. And in college, I also worked really hard with my grades. And I studied while everyone else, else, else was partying. Okay. Where'd you get that work ethic from? And what about... What about the ability to get into that college? You say, well, it started early. I was working really hard in high school. Okay. How'd you end up in that high school and not another? And how'd you end up in a family that valued that and that didn't take you away from your studies? How, how did you end up there? So what do any of us have that we did not receive? What do any of us have that we did not receive? All things are gift. And that's why Paul goes on to say, and if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All things are from God. All things are gift. Our position is not that of a rigged monopoly game. Our position, we're like, those, we're like those kids where you go to the party at Chuck E. Cheese, right? You, you know this party. And you go to the party at Chuck E. Cheese. It's always a good idea beforehand. And you get to Chuck E. Cheese and everyone is allotted a specific amount of coins. Now, the only party that I like when this happens is when the adults are given a specific amount of coins, too, because let's be honest, we all like video games, right? And if not, at least, at least hitting the moles, right? Because you can get some real, I mean, that's worth like an hour of counseling right there. Just, mm. So, 
you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you're given the money and all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, your child comes up to you. Like, three minutes after they're given all their tokens. And they're like, I'm out of tokens. How are you out? How can you put tokens in the machines that fast, right? But they do. They figure out a way and they're like, oh, that one ate my token. I'm just going to put them all in. That's a good idea, right? And then they come up to you and what do you do? So then you allot them tokens. And they're using your tokens. And then let's say that they, um, they're doing the, they're doing the uh, pinball thing, right? And they, they happen to hit this amazing thing. They get all these tickets. And out of the generosity of their heart, they're like, oh, it doesn't look like you have a lot of tokens or tickets. Let me give you a ticket, right? That's like what we are before God. Everything that we have, it's like, is being given to us because we come with nothing. And we're only using his stuff to give back to him. Or we're like that friend who comes to poker night and they lose everything in the first 15 minutes, but they're also your ride home. So you give them chips and so that they keep playing and you keep giving them chips. And then finally they win a pot and they're like, no, you can't have any of my chips, right? What? Everything that we have to play the game of life is given. It's given by God. He sustains it. Everything comes from him. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. And therefore, if we are at the table at all, if we are playing at all, if we are doing anything at all, if we are even giving tickets away to other people, that is a privilege. That's a gift that we don't deserve. And that's the game of life. Paul celebrates giving because... The need is great because the cause is worthy, because the privilege is tremendous, and finally he celebrates it because the significance is intangible. Look at verse 3. Not Paul, David. I think about Paul a lot. So, David is saying that not only did he give out of the royal treasury, but he also gave out of his personal treasury. I have a treasure of my own, verse 3, of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. See, why does David give? He gives out of a sense of devotion. Because he is devoted to the house of God. And when he calls other people to give, he says, verse 5, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Now, to consecrate is actually what happens to priests. And in fact, what the things that they were given are things that only priests could touch. That's what's being made. In other words, what's being said to the people is actually, you are becoming a kingdom of priests, a holy kingdom to the Lord through this offering. And David is saying that the, the money is about more than the money. The reason I'm celebrating is, is because of the devotion that it's about. You know, we talk about money here, and we talk about money, and I do so unembarrassedly. And the reason I talk about money is because money is always about more than money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that means as a pastor, I'm called, I am called as a pastor to shepherd your heart. And if where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, then that means that I can't adequately shepherd your heart and do what I am called to do unless I talk about your treasure. So what do you treasure? 
See, what we treasure, our checkbooks, are an indication of what we value. What do you value? The reason why David is celebrating and rejoicing in verse 9, and the reason why the people are celebrating and rejoicing in verse 9, is not simply because this was a fiscal watermark for the kingdom of Israel. The reason why they are celebrating is because David believes that this is a spiritual watermark. That it says something about God's work in their hearts and their devotion and their living as a kingdom of priests to him. You know, in 2018, we set a spending plan. And we set a spending plan that was fairly aggressive because we knew that we were hiring a new staff member, a pastor, and that in order to fund that, we would need to go into reserves. We knew that. And we thought that it was a wise stewardship, and we believed that we had a long runway, and because of that long runway, that the ministry would actually uh, bear fruit, and it would bear fruit financially, and therefore, that eventually we would be able to pay for it. So we made that decision, and we made that move. And um, about midsummer, uh, the runway started looking a lot shorter than we thought, based on some one-time expenses and some other things, and we said, oh, this is... This is a little tighter than we thought. Uh, but we still had a runway and, and all that. You know what happened by the end of the year? What happened by the end of the year is the runway lengthened back out. You know what else happened by the end of the year? It's not just that the runway lengthened back out, that our reserves were replenished. It, it's that, um, that actually that really aggressive spending plan that we set forth, we met it. We met this huge aggressive spending plan that we put forth and we didn't even have to go in reserves to do it. And do you know what else happened? We went 17 to 18% beyond it. That's unbelievable. That's something to celebrate. That's something to rejoice in. That's something to praise God for because that comes from Him. And listen, I am so encouraged and I am so encouraged, not because, simply because of what we can do with that money for the kingdom. I'm encouraged because I really believe that that is an indication of a spiritual reality and what God is doing in our midst and in the hearts of our people. And I see it. I see it all around us. And I'm so very encouraged because I think that we are at a high watermark. And the Spirit's movement among us. And I think we should celebrate that and rejoice. I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, how does David respond? How do the people respond? He does two things. First, he praises God. Look, verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. And for, a whole, uh, for with a whole heart they offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Verse 10, therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Verse 13, now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. When we got the news about this at our leadership meeting the other night, we just stopped and thanked God and praised him. And then we sang, 
And it was really bad because I let it. <laughs> and nobody knew the tune, and I'm not sure I did. But what do you do? You praise God. Because it's not about whether or not I have a voice or we had a voice, because we had a song. And we have a song. And we should celebrate this and we should thank God. And that's what we should do the rest of this service. But we should not only praise, we should also plead. That's also what David does. He pleads that God would sustain them. Look, we have to plead that God would sustain us in the future. Look at verse 17 following. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. Now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, listen to this, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in, our heart, in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. See, David knows that all things are from God. And if all things are from God, then even the ability to give and the motivation to give is from God. And so if they are going to sustain this in the future, it's going to be for one reason and one reason only. Because God answered their prayer. And if we are going to sustain this in 2019 and in 2020, it's going to be for this. That God sustains us. That he grants it to us. And you know what? We can be encouraged because God loves to answer these prayers. Let me show you. Look at verse 19. David concludes, Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes performing all, and that he may build a palace for which I have made provision. God answers our prayers. David knew that the most important figure in all this was going to be his son. And yet we know that it wasn't this son that God answered the promise with. Because it wasn't Solomon who kept all God's commands and all God's ways and made provision for God's eternal temple. But it was great David's greater son. A greater than Solomon who has come. And he has made provision for God's eternal temple with his own precious blood. And he rejoiced. It was for the joy that was set before him. And he rejoiced and he laid down the provision. And guess what? He laid down the provision for you and for me because we are the temple of the living God. Out of his own treasury, he spilt his precious blood that you might be built into the temple of our God and that you might participate in his kingdom building purposes. And he will see to it that the house is completed. And he invites you to participate. Let's continue to do so even as we worship him now. Amen.